Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Well, good morning. Today we are scheduled to conclude our series, The Songs of Zion. Um, And I must say, they saved the best for last. Um, And hopefully an unrelated note, I was told that we're actually going to extend it another week now. Um, We are, today is our final day of the Songs of Zion. The Songs of Zion have been a series of psalms that we've looked at, uh, not only the physical Mount Zion, where God's uh, presence dwelt, but we also look at the ultimate Zion, where it's dwelling with God, His presence within us, and then looking forward to the hope that we have in the new heaven and the new earth. And so today, as we conclude, I want to turn our attention to the fact that in every area of life, there's a vocabulary. So if you talk to Dustin, you're going to hear a lot about hiking and a lot about shoes. And there are words that he uses that I have no clue. I just kind of nod. I'm like, mm-hmm, yes. Uh, Brandon is the same way. He talks about football, and I'm like, mm, yes, sports ball. Good, good. <laughs> um, I don't know. So we all have whatever area, whether it's work or personal life, we have a vocabulary. We have a set um, vocabulary that, that we all share or speak with. And as I thought about it this week, I thought about the Christian, too, has vocabulary. We, I've heard it referred to as Christianese. Uh, what is it that we've talked about? How do we use these words? Um, I go through a list. I, I pulled the staff, I pulled my in-laws, and I asked what word or phrase is overused in the Christian language. And many things came back, many things. Uh, but in there was the word blessed or blessing. And I stand here today to say that I believe that that is one of the most overused words that the Christian uses. But it's not just Christians. Non-Christians use the word blessed as well. A simple search on Instagram under the hashtag blessed pulled 136 million results. Yeah, 136 million. Um, So what does that mean? Well, one, it means that humanity is created to long for blessing. Humanity desires something that means that they are blessed. But how do we define it? Does each individual get to define it? Or is there a set blessing, a set definition that we must look at? And if it's true, if there's, whether it's one definition or multiple definitions, how do we as a Christian live within life to correctly have Jesus at the center and us be blessed? My hope is that today the psalm that we read and study together shows us three different things that the Christian needs to be blessed. Um, And so I hope today we understand how to truly live the blessed life. We'll be in Psalm 84, 
And here we find ourselves in a psalm that's attributed to the sons of Korah. Some commentators are divided whether it was an individual that wrote the psalm and gave it to the sons of Korah for them to sing or perform, while others say they just, it was kind of a round table and they wrote it and they performed it. Um, for the sake of today's discussion, I'm going to use it in the singular sense most of the time. The sons of Korah, to better understand who they are, were doorkeepers or custodians in the tabernacle and, then, and in the temple. They were descended from the tribe of Levi, hence them being in the temple, and they were descended from a man named Korah, who would have thought, um, and we see Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, and there's more to that. Um, I encourage you to, to read it, to look at it, to be challenged by it, to be confused by it. Um, but Korah and his rebellion um, is a significant part of, of Numbers. And so the sons of Korah, the, the ones that we find in the tabernacle and temple, are descended from them. During the time of David, they became great leaders in the music there, in the tabernacle. And then again with Solomon in the building of the temple. So, we have 11 psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah, and today we're going to look at just one of those. So, if you have your Bible or, or you can follow along on the screen, uh, we'll be in Psalm 84. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the cor courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Down in Dallas, there's a street called Swiss Avenue, and it's a street that runs along one side of Dallas Seminary's campus. If you get on that street where the campus is and you head essentially northeast uh, for a few blocks, you come upon some of the most beautiful older homes that I've ever seen. It, several years ago, Becca and I lived down in that area, but not on Swiss Avenue, uh, but in that area, and um, we, would, we would walk over there quite often, and there were just these big, beautiful homes, um, and I, I would like walking down the streets, and I just remember thinking, wow, these homes. I don't use the word lovely very often. I use the word lovely then. How lovely are these homes? 
uh, kind of like a creeper. I'd try to peek in. I'm like, what's going on in that room? You know, uh, is that a scriptorium? Do they write in there? You know, anyway, these are the things that go through the head of a, of a weird guy. Anyway, um, but I would peer in and I'd look at these homes and they're just, they're magnificent. They're beautiful. Um, and I share that to say that there was a feeling of awe and intrigue that came about as I was looking at these homes. I imagine that the beauty of these homes on Swiss are just a shadow of what heaven with God looks like. And I also imagine that comparatively speaking, the sons of Korah were even more enamored with the temple in Jerusalem than they would have been with these homes in Jeru- uh, on Swiss. And so the sons of Korah in this psalm declared that God's dwelling place was lovely. It wasn't cool. It wasn't all right. It wasn't expensive. It was lovely. That's how they described it. And I was challenged this week. And I want to I ask you as well, when was the last time that your home or possessions were described as lovely? If you have had that experience, it's a wonderful feeling. The sons of Korah are describing the temple as God's home, his dwelling place, and it felt and looked lovely. Of course, as as we've mentioned in previous sermons in this series, the temple at this time is seen as the, the place where God himself dwells. And the area of the temple called the Holy of Holies resided the Ark of the Covenant, and it was there that the Shekinah glory the, the, representative, uh, the representing uh, God's physical presence on earth glowed. Uh, the word Shekinah might not be familiar. Uh, and so I, it's used as a way to say God's glory settled or dwelt in a place. Um, and so the Shekinah glory in Second Chronicles 7, this passage reads, Now when Solomon had finished praying, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Certainly he is good. Certainly his faithfulness is everlasting. The Shekinah glory rested at the dwelling place of God because God was there at, the Mount, at Mount Zion. He was beautiful. He was lovely. But it wasn't the building that made it lovely. It was God's presence that made it lovely. The author of this psalm continues describing his feelings toward the temple, towards God's dwelling place. He says that his soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. This may make you think of Psalm 42, another psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, As the deer pants for water, so so my soul pants for you, O Lord God. It's a poetic way of saying that the psalmist's desire is to be near God. Even if he's just in the courts of the temple... He's pleased to be that close. I don't know about you, but 
Whenever I've seen a celebrity as a, as a shy introvert, I don't want to go up to them. I'm good enough just being in the same building that they are, and I'll brag about that. Um, and so I imagine that's how the psalmist is. I don't have to be right there. I just have to be near God. In verse 2, the psalmist continues saying that his heart and his flesh sing for joy to the living God. Continued poetic language implies that his entire being, everything he does, is singing or worshiping the living God. He is not only singing, but singing to God, singing straight to God. This is his act of worship. The author is so enamored with God that his mind is preoccupied on the dwelling place of God and worshiping Him. As we join together this morning, we're not singing songs to sing songs. We sing songs to God because we're worshiping Him. And we often sing or talk about the things that enamor us. So let me ask you, what enamors you at this moment? How would you answer? Think about that for just a moment. In the last week, where have your thoughts been dwelling? What have your eyes found to be lovely? What has your soul desired to spend time with? What have you talked about most often? That thing or those things are what you have been enamored with. And if I'm being honest, there's been a large portion of my week that has not revolved around looking, loving, and desiring God. There have been moments where, as I study, the Spirit has been good and gracious to me to remind me of looking to God. This is not a a task of just getting words on a paper or mastery of, of a psalm. This week has been, how am I looking and loving and longing to be with God? His Spirit indwells me, but am I making time to pay attention to Him? I hope that as you think about those questions, that you can honestly say, I've longed for God. I've spent so many enjoyable moments with God this week. That's a part of the Christian life, is growing to that place. In verse 3, we see what might be an odd reference to a few types of birds. Um, It also seems kind of out of place compared to the first two verses. We see that the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest. And upon further study, I noticed a couple things. One, that sparrows are essentially worthless in monetary value. And two, swallows are a biblical symbol for restlessness. So why would the author of Psalm 84 use these two birds in a section that's describing God's dwelling place? Well, over the last few months, I've slowly dipped my toes into bird watching slowly. Uh, I've bought a pair of binoculars. I have a bird identification guide. I use the Audubon app uh, to help identify bird calls. And one of the things that I'm learning is there are a lot of common birds out there. I'm tired of seeing the same birds over and over and over. Um, and maybe that's why, you know, the sparrow is essentially worthless. There are a dime a dozen, or as the Gospel of Matthew tells us, they're, they're two for a penny. And furthermore, in my attempt to watch birds, 
because we have a lot of trees and, and a creek that runs by our apartment, so birds are everywhere. In my attempt to watch these birds, another thing has become evident, that there are some birds that truly are restless. They're flying, they don't land, they're erratic in their behavior, maybe because they want to hit me, I don't know, but they move all about in the sky. There's not a straight flight pattern. They swoop and dive. But the interesting thing is, as I begin to watch birds and as I look at Psalm 84 and see these birds, it's a way to, to describe not only their behavior, but God's character. You see, if a worthless sparrow finds a home at Zion, and if the restless swallow comes to rest and raise a family at the temple, then how good and gracious must God be to allow such a thing to take place? Even more so, just like Jesus reminded us in Matthew 10, how good must God be if his love and care for us is greater than that for those birds? The psalmist appears to be awestruck. He, he says that God and the fact that he allows these birds to make home at the temple must be a wonderful and beautiful God, and that's worthy of praise. How can a God who allows such minor things, these erratic birds, a home and not want us to dwell with him as well? I hope that makes us awestruck like it does the psalmist. Think about it for just a minute. The God who desires to provide for these little birds desires for us to be in a relationship with him. The sons of Korah literally dwelt at the temple with God, serving and ministering as they were called to. We don't have the opportunity to live there, but we do have the luxury of something far greater, and that's to have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. The sons of Korah tells, uh, tell us that uh, those who dwell in God's house are blessed. And in the church age, the age in which we find ourselves, we understand that that means that those who are part of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ are blessed. Did you know that there are 112 references to blessed or blessing in the New Testament? Zero of those references has to do with a material thing. Instead, these 112 references of blessing come in the form of spiritual benefits to being connected to Jesus by faith. Sometimes that benefit, though it sounds like an oxymoron, comes through poverty, through affliction, through trials, through pain. But it's through those circumstances that a Christian experiences the blessing or that spiritual benefit of being loved, cared for, and connected to Jesus Christ. So, you want to live the blessed life? Here's the first thing you must know in order to live the blessed life. Those who are blessed dwell in the presence of God praising Him for His love and care. That means first and foremost, you need a relationship with Jesus. That means that you acknowledge who God is, you acknowledge who you are, 
You confess and repent of your sin, and you confess your need for Jesus Christ. By placing your trust in Jesus for salvation, you enter into that relationship, and then you choose to engage it every day. That's how you dwell with God, through faith, through trust in Jesus. The sons of Korah wanted to be clear in this psalm just exactly what the blessed life is. And the first four verses make it clear that the blessed life starts with dwelling with God and having faith in our lives of Jesus. It's a continual engagement with God. Now, moving to the second stanza, verses 5 through 8, we see the second requirement for living a blessed life. The psalm tells us that those who are blessed find their strength in God. In their heart are the highways to Zion. So, what exactly does it mean to have strength in God? And even more so, what does it mean to have highways in your heart? I believe in order for us to answer that question, or those questions, we have to figure out what the rest of this stanza is saying. For example, the Valley of Baca. Mentioned here in verse 6 was apparently a dry area that was being used as an example for a dry spiritual state. The word baka can be translated one of two ways. It can be called the valley of balsam trees or the valley of weeping. Numerous commentators make mention that the, valley, uh, that the translation valley of weeping might connect the reader's mind or the hearer's mind to the 23rd Psalm because of the similarity between the valley of weeping and the valley of the shadow of death. My preference for understanding this translation choice lands on the side of valley of weeping, not only for the similarity to Psalm 23, but also for the fact that the poetic imagination at play in this section helps contrast weeping with what God is doing for the believer, namely comforting and giving strength. Because the valley of Baca is symbolic of a dry spiritual state, I believe the psalmist is saying that the pilgrim or the traveler or the one seeking God's presence will go through valleys of pain, seasons of affliction, moments of dry spirituality, and nights of weeping. We might be familiar with the New Testament teaching that Christians will experience trouble in this world. Our relationship with God does not excuse us from pain, but it instead helps us navigate the pain when we experience it. When you experience pain, affliction, disappointment, or a less than ideal spiritual state, when when your faith feels dry and you just can't get up and pray or even desire to come to church or to serve or just exist, God is willing to give you that strength. He knows what our state is. He desires for us to persevere So he gives us the strength. Do you want God to revive your soul? Do you want to love and enjoy him? Then trust in God's character. It's one that delights in giving such things, but we have to ask him to do so. The psalmist is saying that the believer will experience weeping, but there's revival through the springs and early rain because of God's goodness. It's a comparison of the bad in life, which drains whatever strength we have, and because our relationship with God, we will experience refreshment and peace when going to Him and not away from Him. 
The one in this section of the psalm starts out with strength, but because of the arid and dry land, they are parched. They are tired. Once they find the pools of water, they renew uh, their strength. The journey is enough to take it out of the man or woman of God. To be revived, we must go to God. Consider this for a moment. Probably every one of us in here has taken a road trip at some point, whether by yourself, with kids, with friends. Um, And it's often easy to start out the trip with a lot of excitement. You have your, your coffee, you have your podcast, you have your music, and the miles just seem to fly by. All of a sudden, before you know it, you're 50, 60, 70, 80 miles away from home. You realize, I've been on the road for a while. This is going so easy. I'm going to be there in no time. And all of a sudden, kind of hit a wall. Not a literal wall, you're driving. But this wall where your energy is like, I'm I'm done. Like every time we go to Odessa, I I love our family, but six hours on the road is a lot for me. Um, And that's not that long. I'm just, I'm tired. Um, And of course, as you go west, it gets flat and brown and crusty. It's just not cool. Anyway, sorry, back to this. So we hit this wall where we're like, man, I just, I can't do it anymore. I'm tired of driving. You stop off at the gas station, you get that really bad coffee, you you try to find snacks, you try to find the music that's going to get you pumped, and it just, it's maybe not working. But then all of a sudden, you perk up, you see something, and your energy's back. You see a sign that says 10 miles to your destination. You see six flags and the exit for it, and you're just so pumped. All of a sudden, you're energized. You have this strength again. Well, what happened? You're growing stronger. You're finding more encouragement because you're closer to your destination. And I think the same thing happens to the Christian. The destination is not heaven. The destination is God. And so as we grow closer to God... We are more strengthened. We are more encouraged. We go from strength to strength when we pray to God. And as verse 8 encourages, we recognize that strength is found by seeing and communing with Him. If we are to live a blessed life, we are certain to have moments that drain us spiritually, emotionally, even physically. And when we seek our strength from God, we're guaranteed to be revived. Go to and returning to God for our strength is that highway to Zion. It may look a little bit different for you than for me. I enjoy using prayer books. I enjoy uh, having uh, my, my senses engaged. I, I love pictures. I, I love smells um, as I worship and as I pray. But for me, that helps revive me because I know I'm going back to God. For, for some of you, it, it may be none of those things. Maybe it's just really good worship music. But whatever it is, whatever can help lead us back to God, find our strength in Him, to turn our attention to Him, those are the highways to Zion that exist in our redeemed and new heart. Now, as we move into this final section, these last four verses of the psalm, we see two things that have convicted me this week. I'm telling you, this was, I thought this was going to be a simple sermon. I was like, man, there's a song that's partly connected with this. It's going to be easy. I'll just preach the, the song, and it will be fun. Um, and as I've prayed, and as I've studied, as I've wrestled, 
I've been convicted by multiple things, but, but here are two things specifically. The first is the psalmist view that one day in the temple courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Similar to Kevin, seminary taught me some really great math that a thousand is more than one. And so, you would think a thousand days anywhere is better than one. But the nearness, the proximity, the joy, the blessing of being with God for one day is far greater than a thousand elsewhere. So that's been convicting. Am I willing to spend one day with God than any number elsewhere apart from Him? And the second thing that uh, convicted me this week is the emphatic statement that God's goodness to bestow good things on those who walk honorably with Him are promised and encouraged. Left alone and without deep thought, these, these statements could just be seen as something that, again, the psalmist is using as a poetic device. But these things are a part of what being blessed means. I want us to consider for a moment a place where we enjoy being. A place that we would rather be at almost any time of the year, and especially at this moment so you don't have to listen to me. This place that may come to mind, whether it's the wine country of California, the mountains of Colorado, the beaches of Hawaii, wherever it is, what makes you long and yearn to be there? What makes it so desirable? Well, there's something at that place that you're imagining that makes it worth it. And for the, for the writer of Psalm 84... It's the presence of God in the temple that makes it worth it. For the psalmist, he sees being in the courts of Zion for one day is far greater than any number of days at any other place. Then he takes it a step further. He says that he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I imagine we'd all say dwelling in the tents of wickedness would not be fun. But again... Are we willing to dwell with God? The role of, of doorkeeper at the temple was an important role in the Old Testament, but it really probably was not regarded as kind of where I want to get on my career path. Uh, the doorkeeper's role was allowed to, to let the right people in, keep the, the wrong people out, and that seems pretty easy. Yet I imagine it was harder than what I, I thought, than what I think it would be. The idea of being a doorman makes me think of this old Seinfeld episode. Uh, Jerry and this doorman are having trouble getting along, especially because Jerry just doesn't know how to, how to relate to him or how to talk to him. And so in an attempt to relate, Jerry agrees to watch the door while the doorman goes out. Other people come in, Jerry's fumbling with it, he doesn't really know how to, how to do it, and he himself feels judged in the same way that he judged the doorman. Um, and it's a funny illustration, but it does help me understand the passage. The doorman, maybe both in ancient times and in, in our own, might not be seen as the ideal job. But for the psalmist, he would rather have the role of the doorkeeper so that he's near to God and he's able to worship. One commentator put it this way, the role of a menial servant is more desirable than a life of luxury that's apart from God. 
This commentator and the psalmist are clear. The role that one takes is less important than the nearness of the person to God. The psalmist cries out that he would rather be a servant and in relationship with God than any other thing. The psalmist begins to close out this psalm, and he uses two wonderful illustrations to highlight who God is. The first, he's calling God a son, and the second, that God is a shield. He's essentially saying that God is the source of light and life in the world, and that he's the protector of his people. Then he describes what some might call the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28. The second part of verse 11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In both of these verses, we see that God gives and works for good to those who pursue him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, God's worst is still better than the devil's best. What a wonderful truth this psalm displays. For those that seek after God, he truly is giving us what is best. He truly is giving us blessing. And so that's how Psalm 84 concludes, with the truth and hope. And the third point, that those who are blessed trust in God. Not only do they have a relationship with him, but they trust that he is working and willing all things for good in their lives. When we trust that God is good and we have a relationship with him through Jesus and we are strengthened by him, we are given those abundant blessings, those abundant spiritual benefits. When we enjoy those benefits that enjoin us to him and empower us to live a godly life, we see fruit because we are pursuing God. Regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we can find the unmerited favor of God. We must trust in God's goodness to enjoy that blessing. We must trust Him by listening and obeying His revealed will in Scripture. And we must trust by being an active and vital part of the church and not just showing up but serving one another as well. This psalm demonstrates that blessing comes through intimacy with God. We first and foremost have blessing when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are blessed further when we are strengthened by God, when we commune with Him. And then we are blessed when we trust in God's will and plan for our lives. The blessed life is not about material possessions but it's about the spiritual benefits that God gives us to be fully satisfied in Him. So what do we do with this information? This is a lot. It's a lot of me talking. So what do we do with Psalm 84? How can we lean into the blessings of God as He wants us to by His definitions? You know, maybe it's just my nature. I I tend to be more um, contemplative. I like inventories. I like sitting down. Um, I like thinking through questions and I like inviting people into that if they give me good answers. No, not really. Um, By sitting down and asking these questions and praying to God and then inviting people in your life group or people in the church, people that know God, inviting them in, helping you wrestle with these questions, I think will help you not only be mindful 
of what blessings are, but I believe that it will help you experience abundant blessing because you're on the lookout for God more than you are for things. So, ask these questions. One, in the last week, how often have I dwelt with God? Can I recall a time where I sat intimately with God to know Him and enjoy Him? Furthermore, in the next week, how will I ensure that I'm dwelling with God? What do I need to move or include in my life in order to make time for knowing and enjoying God? The second set of questions you should ask yourself. In the last week, how have I been strengthened by God? Where was I at my lowest or most depleted, and how did I cry out to Him? Furthermore, in the next week, how will I identify my need for His strength, and how will I make it known to Him? And finally, ask these questions. In the last week, how have I trusted God and His plan? Where did I struggle to believe in God's goodness? Where was it easy for me to see His hand at work? And furthermore, in the last week, how will I, in, in the next week, excuse me, in the next week, how will I engage His Word, engage His people? How will I pray, asking to trust His plan for my life? Seek not the answers to everything, but seek to trust God in His character and goodness. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you are apart from blessing, but you can still be blessed today by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, God loves us, but we have a problem called sin. Jesus Christ is the answer to that sin. It's by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you are not there, but you are ready to be, I ask, talk to one of our pastors. If you don't know who the pastors are, it's a pretty good chance that they have a beard except for Lori. Lori does not have a beard, and we're thankful for that. Um, find one of the pastors. We would love to talk to you and pray with you. Um, we're here. We're here to be with you. Um, but if you do have that relationship with Jesus, then you are living the blessed life. Not because of the things that you have, but because of whose you are. It's my prayer that this week you will see and experience the blessings of God in a new and more joyful way. Let us pray. O triune God, we ask that over the next week we are more mindful to dwell with you. We pray that we are not only mindful, but that we engage you in your word through prayer, through community. Let us dwell with you. Let us also find our strength in you, God. For many in this room, we are tired, we're weary, we're frustrated. Life is hard. Allow us to be strengthened by your goodness and grace. And for those in this room and online who are walking in strength and in your power right now, God, I ask that you would orchestrate opportunities for them to encourage the believers around them. Show these others what it looks like to have strength. God, I, I pray that we would also trust your plan. It's hard sometimes, but you're also good and your character allows us to ask you questions. So let us go to you with those questions. But in your blessing and graciousness, allow us to trust in your plan. Allow us to trust who you are and what you're doing. 
God, I pray that you would allow us to be mindful of our spiritual blessings. I pray that you would help us to not seek after things, but to seek after you so that we may in turn be strengthened and empowered and the most blessed. God, we love you and we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and in the life of legacy. God, may we be found faithful and obedient and blessed. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.